As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for listening to the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com, where you can also find lots of great articles, resources and podcasts. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to the C.S. Lewis Podcast, please do consider rating and reviewing it. But now for today's show. I am absolutely delighted to be joined by David Bates, a Brit living in the US who is one of the hosts of the absolutely fantastic Pints with Jack podcast. Lewis writes about Christmas not only in prose but in poetry. And for those that don't know, he always wanted to be a poet and he wrote poetry throughout his life. And he wrote several related to Christmas. The Turn of the Tide is one, but I think probably my favourite is The Nativity. Among the oxen, like an ox, I'm slow, I see a glory in the stable grow, which with the ox's dullest might at length might give an ox's strength. Among the asses, stubborn I as they, I see my saviour where I looked for hay. So may my beasts like folly learn at least the patience of a beast. Among the sheep, I like a sheep have strayed, I watch a manger where my lord is laid. Oh, that my buying nature would win thence some woolly innocence. But as I mentioned earlier, Lewis's essay, What Christmas Means to Me, uh, is found in God in the Dock, that collection of essays. It's, given the title, it's unsurprisingly one where he's most explicit about what he thinks about the season. And <laughs> he is a bit of a grumpy old man in this, and I love it. I'm here for it. Because uh, he begins the essay by distinguishing three things which go by the name of Christmas. Obviously, there is the religious festival, but there's also the popular holiday, which has complex historical connections with that religious festival. And Lewis says it's about merrymaking and hospitality. And this is something that he very much approves of. He likes merrymaking and hospitality. But he then distinguishes it from a third kind of Christmas, which he calls the commercial racket. And this he unequivocally condemns, arguing that it's more about pain than pleasure. He writes, long before December 25th, everyone is worn out, physically worn out by weeks of daily struggle in overcrowded shops, mentally worn out by the effect mentally worn out by the effort to remember all the right recipients and to think about suitable gifts for them. There is no trim for merrymaking. They look far more as if there'd been a long illness in the house. So not only that, he also says that most of this is involuntary. Wow. And people that have seen an episode of the Big Bang Theory, Sheldon suggests something very similar to this. He says, the modern rule is that anyone can force you to give them a present by sending you a quite unprovoked present of his own. It's almost a blackmail. 
Who has not heard the wail of despair and indeed of resentment when, at the last moment, just as everyone hoped that the nuisance was over for one more year, an unwanted gift from Mrs. Busy, whom we can hardly remember, flops unwelcomed through the letterbox and back to the dreadful shops one of us has to go. And he also complains that a lot of these gifts which we exchange are equals some gaudy and useless gadgets. And he asks, have we really no better use for materials and human skill and time than to spend them on all this rubbish? And, and although he is a bit of a grumpy man in this essay, and like I said, I'm not criticizing him for it because I'm, I'm there for him. I, I will point out that he's not the complete Scrooge because he also says in his letters, mm. I send no cards and no presents except to children. So children can still have fun. I feel like as well, that could have been written today, couldn't it? Obviously, he was writing, you know, a, a, a while ago, but it sort of sounds like that is, it, it's capturing the spirit that a lot of people feel that actually we've gone so far into the kind of commercial Christmas and, and he's just kind of capturing the, the essence of how lots of people feel today, isn't he? Yeah. And, and again, it's not that he's against merrymaking and fun. It's it's the commercial racket, the getting everyone these obligations and get and parting them from their money and needlessly and pointlessly and in a way that doesn't actually even bring joy. And I mentioned God in the Dock. Alongside this essay, What Christmas Means to Me, there is another essay where we get the very similar sort of arguments made in a fictionalized form. It's called Xmas and Christmas, a lost chapter from Herodotus. And Herodotus was a Greek historian and it's it's just wonderful. Very, very funny. And I want to read all of it, but I will just I'll just read a few bits just to give the listeners a sense of what it's like. <laughs> Here's how it begins. And beyond this, there lies in the ocean, turned towards the west and north, the island of Neoturb. And when I first read this, it took me a little while to work it out, but this is Britain backwards, Neoturb. And so for any American listeners, they could call it Akirema. Akirema, that works. Anyway, there is this <laughs> island of Neoturb. They have a great festival, which they call Xmas. And here he spells it E-X-M-A-S. Every citizen is obliged to send each of his friends and relations a square piece of hard paper stamped with a picture, which in their speech is called an Xmas card. And because all men must send these cards, the marketplace is filled with the crowds of those buying them. So there is great labor and weariness. As you can see, this is very much the similar ideas he expressed in the other essay just now in a story form. And then he goes on to say, but having bought as many as they suppose to be sufficient, they return to their houses when they find cards from whom, when they find cards from any to whom they also have sent cards, they throw them away and give thanks to the gods that this labor is at least over for another year. <laughs> but when they find cards from any to whom they have not sent, then they beat their breasts and wail and utter curses against the senders. And having sufficiently lamented their misfortune, they put on their boots again and go out into the fog and rain and buy a card for him also. When the day of the festival comes, then most of the citizens, being exhausted by the rush, lie in bed till noon. But in the evening, they eat five times as much supper as on other days, crowning themselves with paper crowns. They become intoxicated. <laughs> but, but here's the twist. He then compares it to another festival. The few among the Neoturbians have also a festival, separate and to themselves, called Christmas. And this he spells C-R-I-S-S-M-A-S. -S -S. So, Christmas which is on the same day as Xmas. And those who keep Christmas doing the opposite to the majority of the Neoturbians rise early on that day with shining faces and go before sunrise to certain temples where they partake of a sacred feast. And in most of the temples, they set out images of a fair woman with a newborn child on her knees and certain animals and shepherds adoring the child. The reason for these images is given in a certain sacred story, which I know, but will not repeat. 
And he then goes on to say that he asked one of these temple priests why they keep Christmas on the same day as Xmas. And the priest replies this, It is not lawful, O stranger, for us to change the date of Christmas, but would that Zeus would put it into the minds of the Neoturbians to keep Xmas at some other time, or not at all. For Xmas and the rush distract the minds even of the few from sacred things. And we indeed are glad that men should make merry at Christmas, but in Xmas there is no merriment left. David, thank you so much for that. And thank you for doing so much research. I feel like everyone now knows exactly where to go to find out what Lewis thought about Christmas. Absolutely. And it's just wonderful that it's very Lewisian. He explains things didactically and then he gives you a story with the same points communicated. Yeah, it's it's the, the reason and the imagination. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I have a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time, and some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Inti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash C.S. Lewis. That's premierinsight.org forward slash C.S. Lewis. Thank you. As he always mm-hmm. does so beautifully, isn't it? David, has the way that C.S. Lewis views Christmas impacted your thoughts about Christmas at all? I don't think they've changed dramatically, but I do feel rather vindicated and validated by Lewis because I'm also not a big <laughs> card sender or present buyer for anyone that's not in my immediate family. Um, it, actually, growing up, I wasn't a really great fan of Christmas. I played trumpet and I was in the choir at school, which meant that I was playing and singing Christmas carols long before Advent even began. So by the time <laughs> Christmas rolled around, I was sick to death of it. But when my faith really came alive at university, my focus was then primarily on Easter, since it relates to Christ's passion and resurrection. Christmas, for me, was still mostly automobile, very sappy and sentimental connotations. Um, (laughs) And it was only later in my Christian walk that I really started to come around to reconsidering Christmas and the the really shocking nature of the incarnation. And this actually was from my contact with Muslims at Speaker's Corner in London that really brought this home to me. Uh, And Lewis does actually explain this in Mere Christianity when he explains what a crazy thing it is we're saying, what an audacious thing. He says, the eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. David, have you got like a favourite C.S. Lewis Christmas reference, or is that like trying to get you to pick your favourite C.S. Lewis quote, (laughs) and it sort of depends how you feel at the time? (laughs) Kind of, but I think I've got a very soft spot in my heart for the earliest Lewis that I ever heard read to me and read myself, and and that's the appearance of Father Christmas. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it says, Some of the pictures of Father Christmas in our world make him look only funny and jolly, but now that the children actually stood looking at him, they didn't find it quite at all that 
They didn't find it quite like that. He was so big, so glad, so real, that they became quite still. They felt very glad, but also solemn. And this is something I think they did really well in the movie adaptation, the most recent movie adaptation of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that uh, Father Christmas, he's uh, solemn but glad. I, I think that the the figure of Santa is really interesting in um, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, isn't it? Because I know Tolkien took great... Um, chagrin to that you know like a fantasy thing and then you've got like another fantasy thing coming in and he was not happy about it at all but I read a book um recently by a guy called uh Jem Broomfield who he made a really interesting comparison he said and I definitely have done this I I sort of put Aslan and the White Witch as antitheses of each other um throughout the Narnia Chronicles and in some ways they obviously are but he was saying that actually that there's something to be said for the antithesis perhaps being between the witch and um, Father Christmas, because Aslan mm-hmm. is greater than both of them. And, and you know, the deep magic and, the, the, you know, the dawn before time, and he sort of sings creation into order. And actually, I think that's quite an interesting parallel, putting them towards each other, because when Edmund first encounters the witch, the way Lewis describes it, you kind of think you might actually see Santa. He describes a sleigh and a reindeer and then like flashes of red and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And then in some ways, the, the episode you've dis- described there, David, of, of actually seeing Father Christmas is almost the opposite trick that Lewis plays on us. You kind of think you're going to encounter the witch because you hear a sleigh, you see a reindeer and then on comes Santa. So I just thought that was a really interesting way of thinking about things that actually Santa is perhaps the opposite of the White Witch. Yeah, and Lewis makes a similar point in Mere Christianity where he points out that the opposite of Satan isn't God. The opposite of Satan is Michael the Archangel. And he's trying to correct this idea, this Manichaean idea that there is a good force and an evil force and they're equal and they're just in a battle. No, no, that's not the Christian worldview at all. God is infinitely more powerful than any evil creation. Uh, But if you want to look for a parallel creation, you have Michael. Uh, against Satan, not God. And I, I hadn't read that book, but I would, I'd endorse that wholeheartedly. I really like the idea that the, the opposite of the White Witch is Father Christmas. Yeah, it just changed the way I thought about it. And I just thought reading that book in the lead up to Christmas and sort of thinking about that in a different way was was a really powerful thing for me. I would, I'm hoping to get him on the show. So we will hopefully talk about it in greater detail. And I'll tell him that you, that you give your endorsement fully. I do. I'll have to get him on our show as well. (laughs) Absolutely. We can share him. Maybe we could do like a little three-way discussion. I like it. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com where you can also find lots of great articles, resources, and podcasts. And do register there for the chance to win a free book. That's premierunbelievable.com. If you enjoy listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast, please do consider rating and reviewing it. Thank you for listening and see you next time.